My light is on, but it's like hard to tell. Hey. Yeah, it's on. It's on. Okay, I'm clapping, okay? Oh, wait, wait. I have to unplug in order for you to clap. Ready? Yeah. One, yeah. two. One, two. And one, two. They're weak-ass claps, Eugene. Is it really weak? What? No, it's fine. But it's like a... It was like a thud. It was like a... Oh, yeah. I didn't get proper contact. I apologize. You didn't really get into that clap. This is Making It Up, a podcast where we tell you what's happening in creative culture and why it matters. I'm Sharice Poon, and my co-host is Eugene Kan. We don't always have all the answers, but we try our best to reach a conclusion that adds value to the conversation. If you like this podcast, please share an episode with a friend. We really appreciate it. Uh, what was I going to say? Interesting. Interestingly enough, before this, I, I came across this article that talked about mic placement. And I, you remember I was, I don't know, actually, you know what? I was complaining about it, but I'm pretty sure one of your friends also complained about it like way back in the day and said my voice is way too bassy. Uh, do, you remember, do you remember that? Well, but you can't change your voice. No, but apparently it comes down to mic placement. So folks, you know, we're what? How many episodes in? We still get better. We just you can still there. learn. Basically, it's like four fingers. Okay, but I noticed on the last episode, you were like varying in and out from your mic, probably due to the fact that you don't have a stand. Yeah, whenever you're holding yeah. your own mic. Anyways, should we get into it? All right, rock, paper, scissors. Ready? I'm not going to have my hand come out of view this time because I kind of cheated last time. Okay, yeah. Ready? Yeah. One, two, three. All right, you win again. I got... I can't tell if the lag does anything. I honestly, because I, I saw like, myself I make throw up, rock first. I make up my mind before before you reach three, and I don't change it. Well, yeah, me. So I don't me know too. if that makes me a too. difference, but like once you say one, I've already decided like what I'm gonna throw. Who went right, first? Let's get started. Who went first last week? It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter who okay, went first gonna, last week. I'm gonna go it's first. I'm gonna go first. I'm gonna go first because it's I just who won. behind the scenes. I just prepared. <laughs> So it's fresh in my mind. So I think we should just go ahead with my one first. Okay, so my topic this week is Inside Instagram's War on Bullying. Bear with me, because this was 
kind of a long article and there are a lot of bits of it that are factual. So I just want to go through some of that stuff first, like to cover the details. And I know Eugene has a opinion ready to go, but if you can just hold it for like a minute. Yeah, I'll hold off. All right. So the article starts with an example of bullying, which I'm going to talk about anyway, so people have an idea. And this was a teenager in Raleigh, North Carolina, who finds out that someone has made an account called Ethan underscore Cohen's underscore neck underscore vein. His name is Ethan Cohen. And that this person has been posting photos of him anonymously to this account, making fun of what supposedly is apparently like a large vein in his neck. And he reported it, but nothing happened. And the platform didn't shut it down. So when IG started, they had really primitive tools and they mainly used human moderators like the founders to shut down like bullying and bad comments and racist remarks and things like that. But obviously like wasn't able to keep up with the scale at which Instagram grew. So IG now is developing more sophisticated tools for users to report bullying, some of which already exist. And it's also developing AI to root out behaviors like insults, shaming, and disrespect. So part of the interest in this angle, there is a part of it that's like a technological interest, I think. So mm-hmm. there is an angle out on this that is about, you know, what is bullying and How do we stop it? But there's also part of it that's quite interesting to me that is about like whether tech is capable of advancing to figure it out. In terms of motivations, this article is from Time Magazine and they spoke with the head of Instagram, Adam Mosseri, who said, we are in a pivotal moment. We want to lead the industry in this fight. So Instagram is kind of doing this because social media really came under fire post 2016 election, right? So you remember Zuckerberg was called into court. There was this big maelstrom of a situation where politicians were trying to really understand social media and what effect social media might have had on the landscape of the country. So part of the reason Instagram is doing anything at all is image control. There is part of it where it's authentic, where it's like, yes, we want to stop this bad thing that is happening to teenagers. But also part of it, just to be honest, is because like they kind of have to. Because the government in the States is like, hey, you either police yourself or like we're going to crack down. So some statistics say, though none of these studies are really clear and time says that, like studies really vary, that nearly 80% of teens are on Instagram and more than half of those users have been bullied on IG. And it's because Instagram really provides all the ingredients for bullying. They provide you an audience, anonymity, emphasis on appearances, uh, anonymity that... or anonymity? Say yours again? Anonymity. Anonymity? Anonymity? Yeah. Why does it sound like there are more letters than there are in the actual word? I have no idea, An- but I've heard anonymity sent anonymity. many times. I can't say, okay, let me try again. IG provides an audience and an... It's not good. I should have to switch it to be anonymous. Okay. <laughs> IG provides all of the tools that can be abused for bullying, such as a ready-made audience, the ability to be anonymous, emphasis on appearances, and channels that can go to different ranges of audiences. And new features often lead to new ways of abuse, right? So Moseri, remember head of Instagram, he does have a tricky line to play as part of a company because 
Too much bullying could alienate users and feel intrusive, but not enough will lead to the press and the government saying, you know, Instagram doesn't even care about kids enough to protect them. Right. And so this next bit that I'm going to talk about is the AI solution. So Mosseri says that he believes AI is the way that Instagram slash Facebook are going to be able to tackle this in a very real way. And it's because Facebook has the money and human resources to like make it happen. So what they're doing is they're training AI to identify bullying in three types of ways, in text, in photos and videos. And they're live right now, actually, and flagging content on Instagram. But they're basically shit at their job at this moment, like the AI algorithms, right? Because mm-hmm. they're tr- they're learning like every day what, the- and when I say they, I mean the algorithms again. They're learning every day what bullying looks like because the most obvious one is like old-fashioned bullying, like calling someone stupid, right? So that's easy where you can look for someone saying, oh, you're stupid. It's really, really hard to distinguish tone of voice and context. And I think we might have talked about this before for fake news. I can't really remember, but something just based off the text could be normal and not troublesome until you realize like, oh, it's in response to this comment or it's in response to this photo or video. And so they're trying, I don't even know how, I mean, I do know based off of this article how they're trying to train the AI, but it's just like, sorry, now this is my opinion part. I just feel that the machine will never keep up with the way humans are really creative with language and images. I'm almost done. So one last thing to consider that another factor of this is the free speech element. Because there are people who are going to say, you know, Instagram by policing bullying so heavily is infringing on free speech. So you can't just say whatever you want. And Mosseri in response to that said, speech is super important, but they have a lot of responsibility given their scale. So I think it is a little bit reacting out of fear. It's possibly will wind up in an overcorrection because Instagram slash Facebook, seeing as Instagram is part of Facebook, really came under the hammer for fake news, right? So they really need to do this like performative appearance of trying to correct what they did wrong. I was personally interested in this out of the topics, I think because we had had a discussion privately about being online and like con- being in control of our own individual schedules, like our own habits of being online. And you had a little bit of a fiery take. You're looking confused. So you do remember this conversation. I'm referring I'm to thinking back on what exactly it pertained to. I maybe, said, maybe you give an exact example. Yeah. Cause I said, I'm not on email anymore. And I oh, also, yeah, 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 that's right. And you said that, Oh no, what was it? Maybe it was that I told you that I deleted Instagram for a couple of days. Yeah. It was like along the lines of how a lot of people complain about the, the toxicity of social media, but they have not gotten to point or they, they, they don't want to do anything about it. No, that's incorrect. It's not that they don't want to do anything about it. It's just that the level they're complaining at and their reaction have yet to align. Yeah. Because certain people that actually do get annoyed or they recognize how toxic 
it is to them, they make a decision, they leave, mm-hmm. period, right? Yeah. But then it's also a little bit weird when people communicate and say, hey, guys, I'm taking a break from social media. Like, Yeah. I so guess, that's, that's, I guess that's, in part- not, We don't really have to go into it because that conversation is not directly related, but I think that's part of why I picked this because I felt okay. like you and I might have some different perspectives on the subject and because we'd recently talked about it. Yeah. Why did you pick it to offer to me? No, I think it was interesting because when I think of bullying right now, like I, I just really wanted to see if the way we handle bullying is primarily left to the devices of the platforms. Mm. Mm-hmm. So what happens, and this is, this is kind of the contrarian like hot take on it, is what do you personally get out of it if you figure out the problem yourself and how to mitigate and or control the situation and, and modify it in a way that you feel um, satisfied, happy, or you feel like you this is the right thing for me to do versus, hey, let me push this to Facebook or Instagram to solve the problem for me. Yeah, yeah. I think that's... It's almost... And if I was to be very... like, If I was to be like... Not, not to beat around the bush, it's like, hey, if you solve a problem based on bullying, what, what do you get out of it? What does that actually mean down the line? And I recognize it's also very dangerous because there's a spectrum, right? Like certain people have have lost their lives over this, yeah. right? Yeah. I'm not saying like everyone should just take control and figure it out, but I'm just saying like- No, I understand. It has I, to, I, no, it has to be a combination. It has to be a combination. Yeah. I think Instagram has to do what they can do within their means. Like they're such a big company. They spend lots of money on advertising. They, I, I also think that as a company, they need to spend- some money and human resources on figuring out what they can do for this problem. And I was thinking about it, and you're totally right. You can never stop bullying entirely. You know, Instagram is not going to train teenagers and humans to now be better humans. That's just not going to happen. But Instagram can try to stop the ways bullying is uniquely done on Instagram using their features. Does that make sense? So because there are ways that people might abuse Instagram specific features and functions for bullying, I think IG has to try to address those, even though yeah. obviously they can't stop all the ways people I, I, bully I, I, each other. I agree. There's there's multiple things at play. There's like the, the governmental play where they need to obviously play nicely with the government and regulations and the regulatory bodies. And the other one is a broader, more societal, cultural thing. And this is Obviously, someone's going to be like, yo, you're such a dick, Eugene. But like, is there a level of softness that, that occurs now that where people are, are kind of deferring solutions to other people? Maybe, yeah. maybe not. I. That's why like. Well, I don't think we're deferring solutions to other people. I don't think we're even actively thinking that we'll defer solutions to other people. I think we as a culture still hasn't figured out how to train not train, train is not the word, like, right word, like teach people to use the internet. As in, like, yeah, that you I and agree I, with. we just grew up like using MSN and MySpace and like my mom totally did not police me at all. And like, I definitely could have, like, in hindsight, I look back and think about like, oh, I could have been in a world of trouble back then. Who knows? Like, maybe there would have been predatory people, right? And it's now like crazy to me to think about the fact that we still don't really, as a culture, like understand the danger of 
internet and tech and like properly prepare young people for it. Because like when I was thinking about this issue, as we're thinking, okay, like Eugene and I, we have like agency and a lot of self-motivation to take control of our social media presence, right? Like you and I, we're, we feel capable and stable enough to like decide, okay, we're walking away or like we don't need to use Twitter right now for the next week. But I think if you're 11 or 12, that's actually a really hard decision to make. I agree. So maybe maybe it's misguided for me to be like, yo, everyone should just take control of their own shit. Well, but the I, thing I is think that, that I think, sorry, to cut, you go ahead. No, I think that was a, the kind of hot take where I'm like, honestly, people just need, I look a lot at, and it's confirmation bias, right? People that have a certain level of success, um, let's say even in the realm of of uh, sports, oh, like, you know, I was, Michael Jordan's great example, cut from his junior high team or whatever, right? turned around and like proved a lot of people wrong. And it's like that act of taking control and, you know, going out and achieving something. And this, that is sort of like an element you can take and you can, you can put it in different scenarios, right? Like sports team, prom with uh, a friend, a relationship prom with a boyfriend or girlfriend, like just that very active problem solving. I don't know how many people are actively considering it. And I, that's why the reason why I was kind of very slow and deliberate in choosing my words is that I understand the, the range and the gamut of yeah. all the things that, that might happen. Some people are in the, on the extremities, right? Yeah. And I, and I never want to be along the lines of like, oh, well, I got bullied as a kid and I figured it out and look at me now. Like, it, it doesn't work that way. Yeah. But it's more about there is a, a consideration that should be put out there that you know, if someone bullies you, what are solutions to it? Mm-hmm. You know, is it do you show up and you and you fight that kid? Obviously, <laughs> that is probably not the one. But like, that's what I did when I was a kid. Like, if someone if someone fucks with me, then like, honestly, you step up and like, if you get, I never thought about getting beat up, but it also was like the only solution. Is it the best one? Probably not. Is it a solution? Maybe. So I'm thinking like running through that versus, hey, you know what? Let me take this and put it in the hands of somebody else. Yeah. But I do think that the challenge becomes in the digital space is that. Given when we were online to where we are now, I would say that if you and I were to have children, I think our ability to understand the digital landscape would also change how our parenting would work. Right. But think about if we had a child right now, they would be babies. So we're talking about the parents of kids who are currently 11 to 15 saying, I I don't really have a study to back this up, but I'm just, I think that between 11 to 15 is probably the most vulnerable age for bullying because it's like when you know kids get smart enough to really bully each other in harmful ways but they're also not smart enough to like get themselves out of that situation necessarily Mm -hmm. sorry smart Mm -hmm. is not the right word like they're they're still really figuring things out in life Um, maybe we don't have the problem solving to figure it out yeah just yet exactly and so I'm, i'm not blaming these parents right it's just that they're the internet is still really new and Instagram's not even that old as a company. So of course the parents do not necessarily understand like what the problem is or like know how to parent in a way that covers digital territory. And I think about the difference. So something I'm not proud of is that when I was a kid, I bullied other people. But when I think about that, I only bullied kids like on the playground. That was my opportunity. And I'm not saying it was a good thing, but like I didn't get to go home and then like keep bullying them. Whereas yeah. now with 
smartphones, with social media, email, like it can follow someone around. And I don't know what that's like. Like I didn't grow up in that age. And I think that is a more severe scale than what we had to go through. Yeah, that makes sense. Definitely omnipresent now. As long as you have a phone, you can bully basically. Yeah. I mean, I'm not, I'm, I'm excited for Instagram to consider these technological ways of solving it. I can't say I'm super optimistic. Even the article is very like, these tools don't exactly work yet. So, and like I said, I just feel that humans are so much more innovative than tech can catch up with, with policing that innovation. That it has, like I said, it has to be a combination of like platforms trying to figure their stuff out and like being more careful about rolling out new features in combination with, you know, human families and communities making sure to keep an eye on young people. No, that makes sense. I wanted to mention two more Instagram features that I left out, which this is just like news, I guess you could call it. So later this year, Instagram is going to roll out a feature called comment warning. And it's like, if you tried to post on my photo, Sharice, I think you're really stupid. Why would you post shit like this? Then you'll get a warning that will pop up on your screen asking you to rethink your words. And I just think that this is so unlikely to have any effect. Well, maybe if it's posted in the heat of the moment, but then that's not inherently bullying. That's an argument, right? Yeah, that's not inherently bullying. It's just for you to reconsider your words. And when I think about it in the, even though my example was kind of like in jest, like let's say you used hateful slurs. Like let's say you were using like racial slurs, right? Then maybe it could work, but probably that person would just like, restructure their sentence to say something mean minus that word but maybe that's something maybe there's still something there in 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 making that happen and the other ig feature that will come out is called restrict and restrict just means what they already have on the facebook news feed so if i restrict you you can't post public comments immediately you would have to wait for me to review them and approve them yeah. In some ways, it is not to be alarmist. Well, I don't know if people would find this alarming, but it is like Instagram applying ideas that came from Facebook to IG. And one of the other things that the article discusses is like, well, should IG do real names the way Facebook does? But for now, the head of Instagram, Moseri, says that that's not happening. I just have to kind of reiterate that that the solution to this cannot fall in the hands on any particular person because also I think that bullying in itself is is very case dependent as well. Like I think you have general sort of broad sweeping things, but like I said, there's tools in themselves that will help eradicate a percentage, but the rest of the percentage might need to be carried over the line by the individual's own assessment of the situation and how they feel they should react to it. So I don't I, like I think that there's a, a lot of different things that are yet to be proven to be not useful. So maybe you need to start identifying everything that could potentially work out. That's Instagram's involvement. That's what happens if you get bullied. That's your own personal agency, etc. I think you and I, as 
not teenagers, we have a role as well in being, and also because we have a community, right? We have a making community as moderators in some way of a community we have a responsibility to be careful about the speech that we put out there and also the speech within the community that circulates i'm not saying that there have been any problems but like the responsibility falls on everyone and like i would never say oh i'm just going to delegate it to slack <laughs> to moderate our internal conversations uh, i think that's it for me eugene over to you that you took more notes than me that never happens well well you know when it starts or flowing you, you know you just paste the article can't stop <laughs> no no okay anyways my subject this week is so my article this week is more of a movement-based piece that brings together two different pieces of news um, the first one is an article and the second is the launch of an app uh, the first article is called cracking the millennial market how art businesses are tweaking their strategies to target the next generation of collectors. And the second part of it, the app is called Otis, and it highlights sort of a new trend in fractional ownership. And if you don't know what fractional ownership is, I can explain that to you. That would be great, Eugene. I'll explain it uh, later on in the, in the piece. So as I mentioned, this topic combines two different pieces of news. The one thing before I get into it that I think is really interesting is... To preface it, mm. we're talking a lot about cultural things here. Like, I think art is cultural. Uh, some of the stuff that Otis deals in could be perceived to be cultural. But so before I get into it, are you familiar with the idea of non-rivalrous and rivalrous goods? Well, I'm cheating because I'm reading your notes. But to be honest, before I read your notes, I did not know what those are. So if you're unfamiliar, a rivalrous good is something that if one person has it, uh, the other person cannot reap the benefits of it. So it's basically how luxury works, right? Like I own this piece of luxury and in a sense, I create value for myself. I exude it. I, I demonstrate it to people around me, but you yourself Wait, can't partake in that value. I have a dumb question. Aren't all objects rivalrous goods? Well, no, I not necessarily. Cup, I think they could be in a way. Correct. Correct. I mean, the, the, those are in some ways like a, a rivalrous good, right? But there's non-rivalrous goods. Okay, like got a it. social network is non-rivalrous, right? Me watching a TV show is non-rivalrous. A park, to a degree, is non-rivalrous okay. unless you reach capacity. So in general, these are all sort of like available to you. But I would say, yeah, in general, predominantly speaking, it, depending on how it's set I, up, I get, most objects sorry, are like rivalrous. Technically, I guess what I'm saying, because of the way objects work, if I'm holding it, then you're not holding it. But is rivalrous goods usually more applied to objects of significant individual value? Like if I have an Ikea cup, even though I 
am the only person holding that specific IKEA cup, obviously very, very many of them exist. Yeah. So I think that you can look at it as a range because in terms of an IKEA cup, if accessibility is high, then yes, it is rivalrous, but I don't think it's to the to it's the best example. So I would say that in general, in my opinion anyways, culture and society, which in many ways are intertwined with mm-hmm. community, are non-rivalrous, right? So in in community sense, this is my best example. What you put in to a community ideally creates a level of output that exceeds what you put in. So that means if I share something or if I help something in the community, if I help the community out in some capacity, what everyone else reaps from is much larger, right? My one Got singular act it. might benefit, you know, 10,000 people. It's amplified. Yeah, it's amplified. So I think in the case of of, of this, like when it comes to art, uh, a lot of the cultural side of it mm-hmm. talks about participation in the form of consumption. So instead of us going and like, and reaping like sort of the the new the new ways of thinking through consuming interesting art. It's more about yeah. like and I have it I'm gonna be part of the movement by wall. owning it. Okay. So the first article, sorry if this is confusing. I think there's a lot of like things to work through here. No, but I think it's fine. This has all been context and glossary. And now we're gonna get into I've, I've tried to be context heavy after Did I? after you kind of ripped on me the last I don't few even remember ripping episodes. on you, but I'm glad that you took that feedback to heart. Kinda. All right. So the first article was done between Artsy and Cartier, and they discuss how millennials are increasingly becoming a big part of the art market, and they'll also be the benefactors of a massive wealth transfer from baby boomers, aka their parents. And this number is allegedly upwards of $68 trillion. Trillion, not billion. I actually thought this was so funny, because basically what they're saying is like, all the baby boomers are gonna die. And then there's $68 trillion yeah. collected. So I'll, I'm going to lay out the, the article kids. before I get into each point. But basically, it talked about four different things. It talked about the pricing of our work as being a factor, digital experiences for buying, podcasts, oddly enough, and identity and diversity in the artwork promoted. So first up was Ellie Rines, who says that younger buyers are looking for stuff in the $500 to $700 range, basically sub 1000 I think we should flag this because I think it's really interesting. Uh, Sotheby's CEO, Tad Smith, discusses the role of online and digital, where 93% of high net worth individuals okay. have bought art digitally. I believe these are millennials. Wait, sorry, just to jump in, Ellie Rines is the owner of a gallery in New York called 56 Henry. Correct. Sorry, I missed it on that. The next one that's kind of interesting is in terms of podcasts. Since this market and these millennials are so big into podcasts, people like Sotheby's, uh, Listen Gallery, and David Zweiner have all kind of doubled down on podcasts as a medium, both to push their own artists as well as to discuss the whole experience around buying art in the world of art, as well as art as a business. And then the last point is about diversity and identity. So galleries are now looking at the general makeup of people buying art and they're starting to cater mm-hmm. artists to those demographics. So it could yeah. be, you know, more Asian American artists for an increasingly large yeah. uh, market for that, or African American art, etc. And this is also another interesting stat. In a, in addition to signing young artists, there's also a big push for women collectors because ninety percent of women taking over mm. baby boomer collections will be daughters. 
Right. So that's that's sort of the end of the the Cartier and Artsy article. The next thing is a recent. Sorry, I think you just said. Did you just say ninety percent of women? Ninety percent of children taking over baby boomer collections are daughters. I don't know how they arrived at this Got stat. It. Yeah. Yeah, it was kind of a weird one, but I'm just quoting what was seen in the piece. Sure. Yeah. So the next one. It's it's on Artsy. The next piece of news that launched earlier this week was the launch of Otis. So I'm going to read you their about mm. section. And then I'll talk about fractional ownership afterwards. But the, the about okay. section reads as such. Everyone has their thing. Maybe yours is sneakers or maybe it's contemporary art. Whatever it is, you get it. The value assigned to it, it's cultural significance, why it matters. But more often than not, ownership of grails is out of the picture because whether because fewer than 100 were made or because that million dollar price tag just doesn't work with your budget. At Otis, we turn aficionados into shareholders. We believe in transparency liquidity, and trusting your own gut. We're democratizing an otherwise closed market and making these alternative assets accessible. Invest in things that you love and build a portfolio better suited to a museum than a stock ticker. So what that means is that they're taking, as, as they put it, grails, mm-hmm. and they're creating fractional ownership where, let's say that there's a piece of artwork from Cause, and they're going to break it up into... 10,000 shares and every share is worth $10, right? So that means that piece of artwork is worth $100,000. And then mm-hmm. ultimately, I don't know if you notice that one word they use liquidity. So liquidity is just yeah. your ability to kind of with relative ease trade in and out. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm on their FAQ because I don't fully understand yeah. how this works. But their first question is how do I make money on Otis and what are my liquidity options? So that really helps. I didn't look at the FAQ to be honest, but I did download the app and I showed it to you, right? And yeah, it's actually a really well done app. I think they do a good yeah, job of you combining it editorial really and the sort of retail component of it, which is buying the, the stocks. It is actually an investment company. Correct. As in An investment company for cultural manage- objects. Yes, but when it boils down to it, we are talking about making a investment in like using money to invest in an object and hoping that that object rises in value so that our investment pays off. But yes, it's different in the sense that they're cultural objects, but I'm just like wrapping my head around like what it is. Yeah, yeah, which is good because I think that that'll maybe allow you to ask certain questions that maybe other people have. Like I've been thinking about this not necessarily whether this type of business will work, but more so like what does it mean for objects when we have such a strong financial layer being developed for it when it's supposed mm. to be in the realm of culture? Mm-hmm. These are my the things like the the questions I've I've personally been asking myself and that I'll I'll just put it out for you and see what your thoughts are. But what do you think is the value in having ownership of something when it's physical and exclusive, but not having possession of it? That's also something that this has caused me to think about but for less time than you, since I've just been starting to think about it in the last like 24 hours, it really does make it similar to an investment you would make in a company. To me, in my mind. Because like, let's say I, oh, actually I do own shares in something. I only share own shares in one thing and that's Monzo, which is the banking company that I use in the, the UK. So I own shares in that. What is the difference between me owning shares in that versus me owning a part of a cause sculpture is the question you're asking, right? I'm trying to think, what is the difference to me? I don't really feel a big difference. Actually, the difference I feel is that the physical product is harder to assess 
in terms of its value and its future value. Not to say that I'm some kind of investment whiz and therefore like have a good grasp on companies, but I feel like understanding an object's role in culture is harder to grasp. And like there are less experts on it. The reason I bring this up is that in terms of my initial uh, statement around like rivalrous goods, right? Mm-hmm. Basically, luxury in itself is usually in some part a status symbol. Yeah. Do you lose the ability to have a status symbol when you don't have full ownership of it? But maybe this is the direction things are going in because I'm never going to have enough money to own a cause companion in my backyard. Like, first of all, I'd have to have a place that has a backyard and then like I'd have to acquire the cause to put it there. So I don't really see that in my future. So maybe getting to own a part of it is exciting to me because I'm contributing in part of this like cultural landscape. Is it though? I mean, you can't floss about it. It's just something you would know. Yeah. So there's that part of it. And I I do think from an actual business perspective though, I think there's a lot of value in this because so the first piece that they've put up on Otis is a $250,000 uh, Kahindi Wiley piece. And if you're unfamiliar mm-hmm. with his work, Wiley's rise to prominence was probably around 2014. Like he was doing a lot of stuff before, but then he was working with Obama and he's just continually been putting out work. A lot of it portrays like African culture in unexpected context. So it might be like dressed in traditional African garb, but juxtaposed against like a Victorian background. I mean, he did the official portrait of Obama that people yes, might know correct. where he's sitting on a chair against this foliage background, like a bush, like a like a flowery background. Yes. And then, okay. so of those 10,000 shares, they're going for $25 a pop, right? Okay. But if I, if I look at the two buckets of buyers, like I think the number of buyers that can put down $250,000 mm-hmm. is obviously relatively smaller than the number of people that can put up $25. Yes. Right. I'm following so you. So obvi- obviously that, that in itself means that there's a lot of interest and value here. So then beyond that, what is also interesting is that $25 would you say is a lot of money if you're in no. this realm and is $50 a lot of money? Still no. Still no, Not right? Not in so, this realm. So if you Not see in like- realm. In, in terms of the opportunity for it to go from 25 to $50, I think it's actually quite easy, right? Yeah. For your share to go versus, I think it's a lot harder for something to go from 250 to, to 500. Thousand. I mean, mind you, yeah, 250,000 to 500,000. That's interesting. So that's one way of looking at like the economics of it, right? I do okay. think that when I was looking at it, even myself, I'm like, hey, 25 bucks isn't a lot of money. Like, I'm almost more interested in the mechanism because mm-hmm. ultimately what's interesting, fascinating is that in terms of these products and their ability to appreciate, I'm, I'm just curious, like, how this will work because you said you have stocks in a company, right? And once yes. they've 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 allowed they've gone public or whatnot they're run in a certain way to maximize shareholder value traditionally that's how it's been yep. right so they're going to do their best to make sure they make money they do it in a relatively lean way etc cetera, etc cetera. 
But mm-hmm. I'm curious when you bring it into this world and these are seen as investments, I don't necessarily know if the products being outputted and the people that are making them need necessarily think that way, nor do they need to work as such to increase the value, right? It just naturally mm. happens. So I don't, I'm curious, like, I don't right. really have an answer to because that. Because when a product exists, it already exists. Unlike yes. a company, let's say, where, sorry, that was confusing. <laughs> when a product is produced, that is what it is. And it doesn't change because like the Kahindi p- painting is what it is. And it's not going to, the artist is not going to add brush strokes or take away brush strokes. And that will like increase or decrease its value, right? Unlike a company, which can make company decisions, which is what you're describing, that yeah. increased stakeholder value. Yeah. I think it goes and- back to what I was saying is that like a product's future is really difficult to gauge because like what if cause, I don't know, like what if, what can he do that would suddenly like rocket his value? Like, what if he suddenly just said, I'm going to stop making art. That's it. Yeah. I'm retiring. So this, uh, suddenly everything that exists just goes like, boom, right? But we can't know that. It's really hard to like say the cultural societal influences that are going to cause this art product, this cultural product to go up and down in value. So you remember at the very beginning of the conversation when Ellie Ryan said that younger buyers are looking to buy things in the 500 to $700 range? Yeah. Like sub 1000 do you recall a discussion that we had where more and more relatively affluent people, but not super rich people, feel as though being pri- they're being priced out of the market because everything is becoming so expensive? So it's basically carving out, there's no middle anymore. It's either like, like tens of millions of dollars. So what I was thinking was, if that's the case and like the 500 to $700 range actually is a pretty poor investment. Yeah. Maybe fractional ownership is actually a good way of looking at That's true. How to get I mean, involved. like what item are you getting at five hundred to seven hundred? But the the but it goes back to your question about like, let's say I acquired a what's one thing the artsy article said? A Christo lithograph and collotype work for seven hundred fifty. Then I can put that up in my home. But if I spend seven hundred fifty on Otis, I don't get to see that yep that's a good point that's a really good point Um, so it kind of depends on the buyer like am i acquiring art as an investment if that's the case then otis seems like a great interesting route but if i'm partially buying art for the way i feel when i look at it or how other people feel when they come into my home and they see that i own it then otis doesn't solve that problem not not that they're pretending to but like then it's not for them i think what's also interesting is otis seems to want to be grailed for art well it's not actually just art because there's also other things in the pipeline that are sneaker based there's like a pair of 2016 uh, air mags the shoes from Uh... back to the future I think there was a watch in there too, a Rolex. So there's a lot of different things. Yeah, Because they said they're interested in doing a secondary market. Yeah, I don't know, actually. It's not really a secondary market for the product ownership. It's for the shares, right? If you happen to own a pair of very valuable sneakers, you could put it up. Yeah. For share ownership, which is interesting. The one other thing I want to bring up too is that I think fundamentally Otis has a great idea, but I don't think it's super defensible. Right. Like, I don't think there's, I don't think it's stopping other people from doing this idea. 
of fractional ownership because basically the supply of these rare cultural artifacts, relatively rare, right? Cultural artifacts mm-hmm. are actually, I think, relatively higher than you think. And I think it'll also get, I think it'll get a bit more saturated as we go on as well from two perspectives, both people that are putting up older stuff. Mm-hmm. And when I say old, I'm saying anything like five years and older, right? And I think anything right now, like there's such a, a gluttony of things being put out that ultimately you're gonna have so many things you can have fractional ownership and it'll mm-hmm. essentially drive your ability to make money down as an mm-hmm. investment, right? Yeah. One thing that also needs to be mentioned too is some of these products, art not being one of them, and also to a lesser extent watches, they don't really deteriorate as products, but sneakers do. There's that part of it. I think ultimately it's like a nice simple flex. It's like, oh, I own part of this. Like I own part of a nightclub if I have like, you know, a percentage of it, but it's it's just on a smaller scale. I was gonna say something that is interesting, which you went into about Otis's company structure not being defensible, is that in the RC article, it talks about how the big galleries and auction houses are really gunning for the millennial market and doing a lot of like online viewing rooms and offerings for millennials. There's really nothing stopping them from also adopting the Otis model. But as in David Zorner could also set up something like that if they yeah. felt like it, even though that's not how they traditionally operate. I don't think it's such a stretch to imagine. Would you, I, I noticed in the video that you sent me that you sent you set up an account with Otis. Oh, yeah, I set it up. I couldn't actually participate because I don't have a U.S. bank account. I would definitely try it for the sake of trying it. Yeah, I thought so. But not something that you would engage in long term or necessarily put a lot of money into. Um, Probably not, to be honest. I don't have know why. Have you ever been interested in buying a piece of art? No, I don't. I don't care for physical things all that much, which is probably to my detriment. I care more like, about like the person doing it and the process, but I don't, that's oh, almost more sufficient than actual, man. Than the actual ownership of the piece. I, I'm interested in owning art, not really at a place where I can own a lot of art, partially because of funds, but also because I move and anticipate moving again in the future. And that makes it kind of difficult. Yeah. But I think it's weird that you're not so, I mean, I guess you're not personally interested in owning objects, but I think we can both agree that objects and the context around them says a lot about who you are or who you think you are and want to be. So Yeah, I think that's about it from my end. That's a good place to cap things off. If you're interested in hearing more about Macon, reading and listening to some of our stories focused on the sights and sounds of creative culture, you can visit us at Macon.com, M-A-E-K-A-N.com. You can also subscribe to us through your favorite podcast app and platforms. If you like this podcast, you can do us a huge favor by reviewing us on iTunes or sharing your favorite podcast with a friend. Also, if you want to get in touch with us, you can email myself at Sharice at Macon.com, C-H-A-R-I-S, or Eugene at Macon.com, E-U-G-E-N-E. We love hearing from you. I'm Eugene. I'm Sharice. And this is Making It Up.